Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey listeners, before we get to Hannah's interview today, just want to uh, share with you a little elevator pitch, but a little background about that first. Uh, Sarah Archer and I wrote a book together. That's right, we decided to try co-writing because uh, several authors who appeared on the show had written books uh, with other authors and we thought it'd be fun to give it a try. And we did, and we took on uh, this thing called podcasting. It's really because podcasting is such a dangerous business, I guess. Anyway, here's our elevator pitch for Death by Podcasting. Podcast co-host Raspy Fuse and Salty Remarks receive an anonymous text. One of the three author guests you plan to interview Tuesday night intends to kill you both. Is it egotistical poet William Z. Wisp, sexy romance author Della Molasses, or tightly wound thriller writer Edwin Nocturne? Raspy and Salty must unravel the plot before it's too late, but if they can't, their sense of humor and wordplay will be all they have left to avoid death by podcasting. Uh, thanks to several people who blurbed the book. Uh, Jennifer Ruff, a USA Today bestselling thriller mystery author, said this clever comedic mystery will keep you guessing until the final revelation. Bobby Nash, award-winning author of the Snow Thriller series, says it's a unique cocktail that's pure fun from start to finish. And Nora Gaskin, award-winning author of The Worst Thing, says, if you binged only murders in the building and are feeling withdrawal pangs, you need death by podcasting. Uh, and we need you to uh, go out there and order it for the whopping price of $2.99. It's an ebook, And when you do, it'll support the podcast. It's also available in print and audiobooks, so you can check those out as well. And now let's get to Hannah's interview with uh, Ben Crane. I'm sure you're going to like it. Hey, listeners, we're here with episode 367, and today I'm so excited. We're talking with Ben Crane, um, who is joining us from Los Angeles. So good afternoon from me and good morning uh, from him. He is a writer and a former film executive whose credits include the Jack Ryan and Equalizer franchises, um, two shows that I love, so I will be asking some questions about that. Um, he lives with his partner and their two dogs in Los Angeles where he plays board games, um, and in his spare time he writes novels and comics. Um, he's also also the author of A Man of Lies, uh, which is his new novel that we're going to talk about today. I just love this book and I can't wait to talk about it. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I was just, uh, before we hopped on here, I was telling him, so Ben is originally from Charlotte, which is very cool. Um, so what brought you out to LA and how long have you been out there? Uh, I moved out to LA in 2009. So I have been here for uh, almost exactly 14 years. I think I moved out in October. So wow. uh, <laughs> 14 years uh, dead on the nose. Um, I moved out here for film originally. I, I've spent the last uh, 12, I spent 12 years working in the film industry. It's what I studied in college and have only recently moved into the publishing world, but am very much enjoying my time here. But it, it, was, it was film and TV that brought me out here in 09. 
Okay, so, well, first of all, happy anniversary. Happy 14-year anniversary in L.A. Um, <laughs> I imagine there's probably a lot of creative energy out there, you know? Is it, has it kind of, like, like what sort of encouraged your transition from film into the more writing-esque aspect of the arts? There's definitely a, a, a creative bent to the city, yeah. Um, it was... It was COVID that that shifted me over. Uh, I was sitting in my in my office uh, about a year into lockdown, and I just uh, let me let me take another swing at that. Um, <laughs> it's a big as question. I completely lost time. my train of thought. <laughs> uh, no, so it. It was the height of lockdown. I'd been working in film for 12 years. Uh, I was on a producer's track. I was doing creative producing. So my job was I would go out and find material for my boss, a man named Mace Neufeld, who had been producing films for forever. His first credit was The Omen, the original The Omen. Okay. Um. And my job was to find material for him to turn into films or TV shows and then work with the creators of that material to turn it into the best possible version of itself that it could be. And I really loved the work. I continue to love that work. But after spending nearly a dozen years working with other people to tell their stories I wanted to take a swing at it myself. And I had an idea for this character who just stuck with me and I couldn't I couldn't get him out of my head. I couldn't not tell his story. And after thinking about it, I I thought originally that I was going to write a movie. And after thinking about it, I realized that it wasn't a movie, it was a book. And so I wrote the first 40 or 50 pages almost in a fugue state. I don't remember creating them. I don't remember making the decision that I was going to try and write a book. I just, it was that really wild time during lockdown where where time no longer had meaning and days and weeks and months just all ran together into nothingness. <laughs> and I had these 40 pages all of a sudden. And I showed them to my partner. I showed them to a couple friends. Uh, I still have the email where the subject line is just, is this a thing? And the response was, was incredibly positive. And so I, I wrote the rest of it and sent it to, to some, some agents who I had met through my development career. And they responded very positively as well. And now, a couple years later, uh, it's a book on shelves that people can buy. But there was no... There was no singular moment where I said, I'm going to be a book person now. It just, it just happened over the course of a couple months where I guess I wrote a book. <laughs> 
and a great book. And it's funny that you well, mentioned, you. yes, no, I mean, and we'll talk about this a little bit more throughout the show. Um, but as you're reading, you can totally, I mean, I knew going into this, your background in film. So as I was reading it, I was kind of just like, I mean, you can feel that like, it's very quick, fast paced, almost like, I mean, I could totally see it as a movie, um, which is a great thing. I think, you know, you never really get bored. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay. Well, thank you. Well, well this I'm is what's happening now. <laughs> Um, which is awesome. And so I guess, so for you, you said you were in school for film. Were you studying the production side or screenwriting or which part of the film industry were you kind of into? Uh, so I went to college at Wesleyan in Connecticut, Wesleyan ah. University. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a double major in film studies and English. And the film studies department at Wesleyan, I... I describe it as it's a literature department, not a creative writing department. So what I was studying was the analysis of film as an artistic medium rather than the creation of film as a creative expression. And I I really loved the program. If any of your listeners are considering colleges and are interested in film, I highly recommend Wesleyan. Their film studies program is fantastic. And that focus on the art of film rather than the creation of film, I really appreciated because to my mind, the best way to learn how to make something is to do it. Yeah. And there, there is no school like practice. Yeah. But the, the art of a thing, the analysis of a thing is a lot harder to learn in doing that, you kind of have to go to school. You have to study people who've done it before. You have to practice analysis, and you do that in an academic setting. And so having that analytical background instead of the production background, I think gave me a significant advantage in my development work because I already had the tools to study and analyze how a piece is achieving its goals Mm -hmm. and then find ways to further that achievement. That's a really um, interesting thing. You know, I think it's kind of a unique, uh, I'm going to link to Wesleyan's film department in my, in the show notes, because I do know that we have quite a few younger listeners that probably are thinking about that. And I I don't know if you know this, but Sarah, one of our other co-hosts, she's screenwriter. And, you know, I actually went to school um, originally for film studies at UNCW. Um, So yeah, I I changed that course, went down the English (laughs) route and communication. I was like, I don't know if I've got the like <laughs> stamina for this. Um, it is an exhausting industry. <laughs> it's very, very long days. I've heard that. And well, you know, I mean, yeah, I just was like, no, I, all day I will I will watch TV. I feel like I used to be like, can I just watch TV and <laughs> movies as a job? <laughs> can I study that? <laughs> That a lot of people think that that's what a film yeah. degree is, that it's just watching <laughs> movies and, and yeah. uh, it's not. There's there's a no. little bit more to it than that. No, no. Yeah, we I, I think when we got into the Stan Brackage um, <laughs> sector of the degree, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm up for this. 
um but no yeah i mean i can i can totally see how these different areas probably influence each other just throughout your career and i'm sure too as you were writing this book you can probably like i I can imagine you got a lot of inspiration throughout your career in film for this is that right or how did how did you kind of become inspired to write a man of flies so um I don't know if we've done a like brief intro of the book for the listeners yet or not, but it's a, a heist thriller. Uh, it's a sort of ensemble style. Uh, it's four days in Omaha, Nebraska, as a mafia enforcer tries to pull off a desperate con to save his own life after he and his boyfriend are caught stealing from the mob. And so it tracks him, it tracks a group of dirty cops, it tracks some straight cops, some very competent professional criminals, some slightly less competent professional criminals, all of these groups as Omaha is thrown into chaos by this con that that, uh, Barrett, my protagonist, is trying to pull off. And... Looking at my list of inspirations, there's definitely a lot more on the film side than on the literature side. Uh, The early Guy Ritchie movies, uh, movies like Snatch and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, I spent a lot more time looking at those than I did crime fiction. Um, And I definitely... The feedback I have gotten is that I write like a person who spent 10 years working in film. Uh, (laughs) Film scripts are very lean. They provide only the information that has to be there and nothing more. And they're very focused on physical action and dialogue because those are the things that film can represent. And yeah, that's that's what my book is. There's not... (laughs) There's not, there is some internality. I don't want to uh, make people think that it's it's purely surface level. But there is, uh, I describe the things that need to be described for it to make sense. And then I am happy to leave the rest to the reader's imagination to construct the world how they see it. I love that. And I feel like I just echoed that feedback. <laughs> You're probably like, okay, here we go again. Another person's telling me, like, I can tell you have a background in film. Um, but no, that's a great thing, I think. And I, I feel like um, I, I'm glad that I was the person that got to talk with you about this because that's, I, I say that a lot um, on the show too. I really, I'm one of those people that when I'm reading, I don't really like a whole lot of extra, like, I don't know, words, I guess. I don't know. I, it's probably because I, I'm a huge fan of tv and watch like watching things that i can kind of um keep up with quickly and my i I kind of lose focus semi-easily for better or worse (laughs) so i think for me when i was reading this i mean you totally get that get that energy um and i can imagine how i think it's interesting that you're saying that you watched films instead of read crime fiction to get to this because you don't really hear that very often you know because usually it's like you read like or read like a writer is that right (laughs) watch tv like a writer (laughs) i think that's really interesting (laughs) 
I love that. Um, I kind of want to dive into a conversation about Barrett. And thank you for that, you know, overview of the story. Again, everyone, this is really, really an interesting book. I think, um, too, there's a lot of themes that you see you don't see in crime noir film or uh, books. Now I'm going to start saying films as if this is a movie. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a lot of things that are happening in here that you don't really see in crime fiction I mean for example like Barrett himself is kind of like he isn't exactly what he seems I mean if you look at him from the outside Mm -hmm. you have these characters a lot of the time in crime in any kind of crime storytelling that are like husky burly guys that are gonna go beat you up and bring them back to the mob boss which there is that in this for sure however I mean he really is trying to find a way out you know um so And he's gay. I think that is kind of an interesting, um, you sort of created a a multi-dimensional character. So how did you map him out? My, My goal with Barrett, Barrett's whole conceit as a character, he is a con man who rather than being the fast-talking George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven who can just run rings around everybody and spews out lies like they were air and just fills the the room with so much charisma and confusion that you don't realize you're being stolen from until it's too late. Barrett does the exact opposite. He is almost silent he says as few as as few words as he can but he lets his target make assumptions and he controls those assumptions through his words through subtle gestures facial expressions and he then turns those assumptions against his target and takes advantage of that disconnect to pull off his con. So I knew that he then had to be a character who everything about him is not what it seems. So he's this big giant of a man who we think the trope of that giant brooding hulking man is that He's kind of dumb. He defaults to violence at every turn. That he just hits things until the problem goes away. He doesn't have very many thoughts. He doesn't have very many ambitions. He just wants to be pointed in a direction where he can go and and smash somebody's face in. And Barrett is very much not that. And... So the process of finding his character was just finding ways that he can build assumptions about who he is and then subvert those assumptions about who he is. And making him gay was my own version of that for the audience because queerness is so so poorly represented in the crime genre. Yes. And queer love is almost entirely absent. And I didn't want 
Barrett's story to be about his gayness. I wanted him to just be a gay man who is doing all of these things and happens to be queer. Uh, but what I tell what I tell people is if I can draw in one person who maybe hasn't read a queer story before and would be turned away from a queer story just because it is queer. If I can draw them in with this violent, virile story of crime and lies and violence and trick them into falling in love with these two incredibly sweet men, then I will be happy. I think you're probably doing that. I actually know that you're doing that. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And I, you make a good point, though. It's at, the, uh, at the core, as you're reading this, you kind of forget. It's not really a thing, which it, it wouldn't be in... I don't know if I'm explaining this the right way, but you're reading it and you're not thinking like, oh, you know, like it's these two, two a story of two gay guys that are in love. Like, it, no, it's like this is a, this it is a, lo- it reads like a love story in the most violent possible way. <laughs> like, it, it, it's, it's funny because I was reading it. And I'm like, this is so sweet though. Like he, he's going after, he's, he's trying to be the, the man that, <laughs> you know, Mickey knew he could yeah. always be. But it, I mean, you did a great job with that though, because it is, it's like, it's a, it's a full, it's an action packed story. And um, I like the way you kind of put it saying he's a, it's not, he is, he just happens to be gay, but this is a story outside of that, you know? Um, and I think it's the whole, the whole thing about this book is like not, um, you know, looking at this story and these characters that are involved in these organized crime <laughs> organizations with <laughs> these uh, crazy people. It, none of them are really what they seem, you know? Um, there is like, and I, I know you have one of my favorite characters is, um, Cass and is, how do you pronounce her? Her full name is Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia. (laughs) Cassiopeia. I really liked her a lot. Um, I thought that she, and you know, I'm kind of picturing, I have a a very clear image in my, my mind of what she looks like. And, and for all of you guys, she's kind of like a very strange, like she's sort of just like this very feisty, I imagine her being this feisty little lady with, um, she's got uh, yeah. a big partner, Vic, who's kind of like, you know, I, I forget how you, it's, what is you, he's like a pretty, <laughs> pretty and big. He's, like, he, he is an Adonis. Like, he is a beautiful, yeah, yeah Greek statue <laughs> yes. of a man. Yes. And then there's Johnny Boy, her other sidekick that she kind of just doesn't want to. <laughs> let go of mm-hmm. due to <laughs> longevity but none of them are really as they seem you know and they all they, that trio gets kind of caught up in what what's going on with Barrett and um the the mob bosses and all of these different things and what I like about what you do in this book is you you kind of kick things off um with Barrett telling the story um from his perspective like he is he is writing the book basically and he's sort of telling you um, where it all began and all of these thi- stuff like that and so then you move into the different chapters and you're kind of telling the perspective of the different characters so you can kind of see how each character views the other person which I think is really a great way to kind of um, 
you know, build off of that theme that nothing is what it seems. Like you can't really judge a book by its cover. You can't you can't possibly know <laughs> what anyone's life is like or what they've been through or what their um, mm-hmm. plan is. I think that was kind of as I was reading through this, it's it's just really neat because I think you can apply that to your own world um on a daily basis like you you could be walking down the street and see the the crime lord of cincinnati ohio i don't know like (laughs) things like that so um why did you decide is that kind of why you made the decision to write it from the different perspectives and or how did you make that choice i yeah i i'm genuinely moved to hear you say all of that it it is it is uh, exactly what what I wanted the book to be. I if there is one through line across everything that I write, it is radical empathy can solve almost anything. And if we just took a little bit more time out of our out of our day to think about what other people are going through, the effects of our actions on other people, and how what we're doing looks like from their perspective, then so much anger and hatred would just disappear. And that that is exactly... That's the very high level, um, uh, academic and slightly arrogant interpretation of, of what I'm trying to do, uh, on, on a more page by page level. Uh, yeah, I love, I love the moments in film or TV or books or comics or whatever media it is where you see something from a perspective and you believe that you have a perfect understanding of what's going on and then the perspective changes you see the exact same events the exact same people doing the exact same things but looking at it from this slightly different angle with slightly different information completely changes your understanding of what is going on and why people are doing what they're doing and I believe I have eight point of view characters across the book, mm-hmm. that sounds right. which, uh, looking back on it, might have been slightly ambitious. No, but it's <laughs> just right. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> having having so many different point of view characters makes it very easy to to pull that off, and makes it very fun to pull that off, and. The favorite, my favorite scenes to write were the scenes where you watch the first half of the scene from one character's point of view and then switch halfway through. You go to a new chapter, you're now in the same scene, in the same moment, but with an entirely different perspective on it, and it just changes everything. Right. And I, I brought up Cass earlier because I feel like, um, especially toward in the beginning, like where you know, she sees Barrett for the first time and her interpretations of him 
were just hilarious, mm-hmm. you know, because the way the way this character, <laughs> the way you wrote her, she's just got like her dialogue is is really really good. <laughs> she's just like, oh, thank this you, dumb brute. Like he's a dumb brute. All these things like that, and you're just thinking in your head, you're like, well, it's just it's really interesting because the book is is kind of given to us in the beginning from the brute <laughs> from the mind of the brute and we know what's going on so it is i mean you definitely accomplish that goal as far as you know we do and i think it's it's funny we're talking about this right now because um while i was reading this uh i i had one of those days where you know you're just like interacting with people who aren't that nice it just kind of gets you down sometimes mm-hmm. where you're like why, why are you not mm-hmm. nice <laughs> And then, but it's because I was reading this, I was thinking though, you don't really know what's going on ever um, for other people or what they're off to do or like, I mean, so it could be something small even. So I think like for, for readers who are planning on picking this up, it's um, what, something that I love about every book that I read or I look for in the books that I read is how, how is it going to really, how is it going to feed into my life or how can I apply sort of the story or where am Mm -hmm. I going to see my life in, in the story and um, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And so I think that that's a really powerful part of this where, you know, it's, it's a crazy crime, thrilling ride, but you can also <laughs> see the humanity in these kind of wild <laughs> characters that you probably don't interact with, or I, I hope you probably don't, but it was, I mean, it's I, w- really I would great. hope for the listener's sake. <laughs> I, I would if you hope see for a man named Scarpello not interacting with these people. <laughs> yeah, if you see a man named Scarpello, just avoid. <laughs> um, turn the other a, way and run. <laughs> just don't waste any time. Um, do you have a reading that you could share with us today? Uh, yeah. So um, as as we have alluded to over the course of this conversation, it is a very um, rapidly plotted book, let's say. And so I'm going to do a, a reading from relatively early in the book, uh, just the beginning of chapter two, because I, I think anything else would require far too much preamble to set up. Uh, but this requires no, no preamble. Uh, this is um, the first couple pages of chapter two. Uh, so chapter two, two months ago. Enrico Scarpello, the man who ran organized crime in Chicago, had asked me to join him in his office. Most collection guys wouldn't be meeting with him personally, but I'd been working for him since he was a street boss, so I didn't think anything of it. The guys out front waved me in when I arrived. The old man sat behind his desk, looking pristine as always. He was laughing at something Mickey had said. Mickey was sitting across from him with an accounts book open between them. That was when I knew something had happened. There was no good reason for me and Mickey to be meeting with Scarpello together. Plenty of bad reasons, but no good ones. Mickey turned, and his smile dropped a fraction of a degree. His lips drew closed across his slightly crooked front tooth. He hadn't known I was coming either. Two bad signs. I kept my face neutral. No reason to give away my concern. There was still a chance that this was something banal, We'd been careful. We hadn't left any signs of what we were doing. What's up, boss? I asked. Scarpello looked at me, and I knew how fucked we were. Thank you for joining us, he said. His eyes flicked over my shoulder. 
I felt her moving behind me, but I knew better than to look. Scarpello was in control. Whatever he wanted was going to happen. There was a faint stirring as the door closed, and Laya Quintana took up a position beside me. Laya was a soldier, like me, but the similarities ended there. She was a gun for hire, and her presence meant Scarpello no longer trusted his own organization. She was a small woman, barely a hair over five feet, but as much of a mistake as it is to ignore me for my size, it's worse to do the same to her. She'd tracked guys halfway around the world based only on a whisper. We'd never gotten along, but I respected the hell out of her. "'What's going on, boss?' I asked again as Laya quickly but thoroughly patted me down. I tried to keep my expression empty. "'He's clean,' Laya said. She slid a chair into the backs of my legs. I rolled forward a bit but stayed standing. "'Sit down, Barrett.' Scarpello's tone was conversational. Of course, he didn't call me Barrett. I had a different name then, but I'll keep it consistent here for your sake. "'You've done a lot of quality work for me over the years.' You're one of my best earners, squeezing money out of stones I'd given up hope of ever producing, and that alone is enough to win you my admiration. Mickey was staring forward, his gaze locked onto the space just below Scarpello's chin. He'd never been one for conflict or confrontation. It was one of the things I loved about him. He never let this world we lived in harden him. That wasn't what I needed right then, though. But my affection, Scarpello was still talking, you earned with time and dedication. This world isn't what it was when I was coming up, but you I could always count on. You're like a sledgehammer. I wouldn't try to do algebra with a sledgehammer, but when you need something wrecked, it's always going to be there for you. You understand what I'm saying? Not really. At the sound of my voice, Mickey snapped out of his reverie. Boss, he said, whatever you think is going on, now Mickey here... Scarpello silenced him with a gesture. Mickey is a whole different sort of creature. He's more like a ferret. Did you know you could train a ferret? They can do tricks. You can even put one to work. But it doesn't matter how well you feed it or how often you play with it. It's still nothing but a fancy weasel. If it sees even the slightest opportunity to advance its furry little life, it'll take it. It doesn't care how bad it hurts you. It doesn't even care if it hurts itself. You put one in a cage and prop the door open with a bit of food, the dumb little shit will eat that food and slam the door on itself every time, even if it knows it's sealing its own fate. I barely felt the needle as Lya pressed it into my neck. It didn't need to go deep, but the anesthetic burned as it entered my bloodstream. Love it. <laughs> and I love the description of the the woman too, the like hit woman, <laughs> where where that's the perfect example too. Where right there you're saying like it's a mistake to think to kind of like miss my size, but her size <laughs> people are mm-hmm. people definitely think they're fine and they're not. <laughs> they are not. No, and, she is scary. And they're not. Um, it's I love that section. I think the beginning of the book, you really are just hooked from the get go. Um, and one question that I had for you too, you mentioned just kind of, um, it is very, the pace is quick. Do you have any tips for people who are trying to write like fast paced scenes and thrill, like kind of more along the lines of, um, what you're doing here or writing for film, that kind of thing. Take out everything you don't need. Yeah. 
Uh, take out e everything you don't need. Uh, the editing process of this book, um, it wound up at about 95,000 words. My first draft was 128,000. And wow. from 128 to 95, I did not cut a scene. There was not a single scene, a single moment in that first draft, which didn't make it into the final version. Instead, it was just a word here, a sentence there. Every time it was an exhaustive process of going through the manuscript over and over and over again, and just going paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, this sentence is 10 words long. Can I get it down to nine? Can I get it down to eight? Can I get it down to seven? And every description which doesn't directly contribute to forwarding the narrative, forwarding our understanding of these characters is gone. Every momentary thought which doesn't drive what's happening is gone. And... Um, I, I've always loved Elmore Leonard's description of how he edits, uh, which is he said he takes anything which sounds like writing and he cuts it. <laughs> I love <And> that. <laughs> it's so easy as writers to get caught up in our beautiful words and you you come up with a clever turn of phrase and you just... You love it, and it's sweet and precious and dear, but if it's not adding to the reader's understanding and enjoyment in that moment, then get rid of it. And that, just to be clear, is purely if you're wanting to write this. <laughs> if you want to write swift, driven uh, fiction, then do that. I... I love books like this. I also love the most navel-gazy, tangent-driven, wildly just go go everywhere. Uh, one of my favorite passages is um, uh, Ian McEwan's Enduring Love, uh, where in the beginning of the book, there's a, a man who... There, a hot air balloon escapes with a child on board. Okay. And a group of people try and grab onto it and anchor it to the ground. But one by one, they drop off until there's only one guy left hanging by this, hanging from this rope as the hot air balloon floats away. Mm -hmm. And it, the scene lasts about 10 pages in this book. And it's not a particularly long book. Wow. It's, it's an incredibly long sequence. And it's maybe a 20-second stretch of time as this balloon drifts up and up and up and this man is dangling from the rope. And then he loses his grip and he falls and, and dies. But his ascent is stretched out so long and it is one of the most agonizing tense just unbelievably fraught yeah. passages i've ever read because it's so drawn i can out. feel that <laughs> right now <laughs> 
And if that's what you're going for, then absolutely do that. Yeah. If you want tight, driven, <laughs> just just constantly propelled forward, then take out everything which isn't strictly necessary. So are you a planner? Like, do you do you kind of storyboard yes. and map out? I can kind of feel that energy. <laughs> uh, yes, I am definitely, definitely a okay. planner. Um, I before I say I wrote the first 40 pages in a fugue state, but at the same time, before I ever sat down to start writing pages, I had a outline of every scene, every beat in every scene. I knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, I know my own brain. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I'm not capable of. The, The part of my brain which can handle big picture narrative things and the part of my brain which can handle moment to moment character stuff uh they are competing for the same cpu space i can do one or the other but not both at the same time so i need to plan everything uh, before i start writing pages otherwise i'm just gonna get lost that's a gift to know your own brain that well (laughs) you know (laughs) it was a process to get here (laughs) Always is. <laughs> um, we're running out of time, which I hate, but I do have one question that I wanted to ask you just um, for my own curiosity about your time in the film world. Uh, but yeah. when you were working on Jack Ryan, so I, you know, I, I had to promise my mom I would ask you this because we're huge Jack Ryan fans. <laughs> Did you get to hang out? I'll do my best to answer <laughs> Did that. Did you get to hang out with John Krasinski? <laughs> I didn't, unfortunately. Uh, The work that I did was largely pre-production and development work. Okay. So my job started with the generation of the idea. Wow. And I would work with whoever the creator of the particular project was. And um, on the Jack Ryan TV show, there were a lot of people working on that, and my contributions were small. Uh, I don't want to claim credit where I, I can't. Uh, but my my boss um, had been working on that franchise for since its inception. Okay. Um, he produced the original Hunt for Red October. He he was the Jack Ryan guy. So we we were involved with that. But my my work ended when everyone else's work began. So as soon as we had the the script, then I was done, and I moved on to the next thing, which unfortunately means I did not ever get to hang out with John Krasinski, <laughs> which I am not at all bitter about. <laughs> There's still time, you know. <laughs> You're in there LA, is. man. Like, <laughs> I, I can go track you it could. down on the on the SAG picket lines. It's right down the street, I heard. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, that's actually really exciting, though, and I think it's probably like for someone like you, who is who does have all these ideas floating around in your brain, it probably worked out for the way your brain kind of works, just on to the next story, you know. It- it was a job that I, I genuinely loved and, and really, really enjoyed. That's yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. And I just want to kind of close out by saying, I think, so this episode is airing um, 
right as we roll into the holidays, I know a lot of you guys in our uh, listenership are big readers and have readers in their families that love um, thrillers and crime noir and um, thought-provoking stories. So this will make a great Christmas gift, holiday gift. anything at all go get it man of flies it's awesome thank you for writing it ben and thank you for being here today thank you so much for having me on this this was a true pleasure (laughs) all right guys you know what i gotta say read on write on and rock on